All right, let's turn back to Genesis chapter 23 this morning. And in our study of Genesis, we have been following the life of Abraham, the first patriarch of Israel and father of all the faithful. And his life consisted of steady growth and trusting God's promises, but he also experienced failures of faith along the way, just like we do. Twice he was deceptive about his relationship to Sarah, calling her his sister when she was really his wife, and he exhibited on those occasions fear instead of faith in God, and of course God had to rescue him out of those dangers. He and Sarah also attempted to fulfill God's promise of an heir in the affair with Hagar, choosing their way, their perceptions, instead of just trusting the Lord. But Abraham also demonstrated more actions of faith than faithlessness. He followed God's call to Canaan. He magnanimously gave his nephew Lot first choice of where to live in the land. He then valiantly rescued Lot from Uh, Captured by a coalition of eastern kings, he gave Melchizedek, priest of the Most High God, a tithe of those spoils. He compassionately pleaded with God to spare the cities of the plain uh, for just ten righteous souls, and the peak of his faith was attained in our uh, last lesson, or nearly our last lesson, when he obeyed God's command to sacrifice his beloved son Isaac, the son of promise. And he believed somehow that God could even raise him from the dead if he would obey that command. Well, this brings us to another very difficult time in the life of Abraham. We come to chapter 22 and verse 20. And this begins a transition in Genesis from the life of Abraham to the life of Isaac and Jacob. And it records for us, to begin with, Sarah's death and burial. Now the main focus is Abraham's negotiation with the people of the land to acquire a burial place for his beloved wife. And we may wonder, well, why in the world did God put this in the Bible? Why do we need to know about the transaction that secured a burial plot for Sarah? And what does it have to do with us today anyway? Well, what we're going to find is that it shows us how Abraham, in faith, continued to claim the promises of God, even though he and his wife would not fully see them fulfilled in their life. And he's an example to us of how we can claim those promises as well. So let's all ask God's blessing on his word today. Our Heavenly Father, we are thankful uh, for the word of God, for all of it, Lord, even those portions that we don't always quite understand, at least not uh, Uh, immediately what their purpose in the word of God is. 
But Lord, we see from this passage that as Abraham claimed your promises for his needs, we need to do the same thing. Your word is filled with promises of how you help your people in times of difficulty and what's going to happen to them throughout life and even into eternity. So Lord, help us to claim the promises even as Abraham did and bless us with your word this morning we ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're going to start off in the last few verses of chapter 22 This is kind of a prologue to the final section, which will cover a few chapters coming to the life of Isaac. And we find here really the importance of of family ties. And after Abraham has come to that peak of his life where he's trusting the Lord, even when God tells him to do something uh, totally puzzling, like take the life of the promised son, Uh, He's moving forward, and he hears some news from his previous homeland, as God is not only blessing Abraham, but those in close connection to Abraham, like his brother Nahor. And as we come here, we're really kind of connected to the beginning of Abraham's story in chapter 11, uh, where we have the godly line, the chosen line, the seed of the woman from Genesis chapter 3, coming about in the the man Terah and his sons, Abraham, Nahor, and then another son who had died. So over the years, God has blessed Nahor as well. He's given him 12 sons, eight by his primary wife, and four by his secondary wife. And it's interesting that this number 12 we find in other family relationships as well. We begin this section with a genealogy. We also end it with one. uh, As the sons of Ishmael are blessed, as God promised his mother Hagar, and he has 12 sons. And we also find that Jacob, the son of Isaac, is going to have 12 sons, eight by his primary wives, Leah and Rachel, and four by his secondary wives. So there's there's this concept of God blessing those who are close to Abraham, not just the seed that continues, the promised seed, but others that have come into close contact with him. Now, we're also seeing in this passage the introduction to Rebecca, where she came from, and the family tie uh, that uh, later God will use to select a wife for Isaac. So again, it's important. Now, in verse uh, 20, the second half of verse 20, going through verse 21, uh, actually 22a, you'll see that this section is in a parenthesis. So that means it's a, not a parenthesis, but a quotations. So this is the announcement that comes to Abraham from his previous homeland where Nahor is still living. And it's good news because it gives all the names of the children that they've had. And there's a connection there. But in verse 23, we have an added note by our author that tells us that Bethuel, the last son, but not the least son, is the father of Rebekah. And we know that Rebekah will become the the wife of Isaac, 
And because this was not part of the announcement, it may well be that Abraham was not aware <clears throat> at this time that Rebekah was alive before he sends his servant to find a wife for his son Isaac. Okay, so this points out to us the importance of patriarchal family ties. Incidentally, the name Bethuel is interesting because it means dweller in God. And if you tweak it just a little bit, it means man of God. So what does that tell us? That tells us this likely Nahor, or excuse me, Bethuel, the son of Nahor, was a believer. He's named after one of the names of God. So not only do we have a family physical tie, we may well have a family spiritual tie. So the stories of the patriarchs emphasize keeping marriage within the family. This was not an unusual practice in ancient times to marry a close uh, family relative. And they did that so that their family, their culture within that family is going to survive into future generations. Now, in the case of Isaac, it was important that his marriage be not to a Canaanite culture, a woman from the land of Canaan. So that's why they want to go back to Haran and the family of Terah to find a bride for Isaac who is in that uh, chosen line, if you will. Now, of course, Nahor was not the chosen son. Abraham was. But he's still in that godly line coming from Terah. And it was important that our, I, Isaac marry someone in that family rather than the culture of Canaan. And we don't really have ties that close physically anymore. However, we should marry those within the family of God, the spiritual family. In the law, later on, God will forbid Israel from marrying outside the chosen nation. And in the New Testament, God forbids marriage between a believer and those outside of the family of God. So we kind of see the roots of that in uh, these patriarchal relationships as they ensure marriage within the family. Now, this leads us then to the main focus of chapter 23. And we see in the first couple of verses here that Sarah's passing, her death, provides an opportunity for Abraham to claim the promises of God. Now, uh, it's interesting here that the only place in the Bible where the age of a woman is mentioned is here, that Sarah was 127 years old. And that uh, that's an important thing. Now, it informs us of a few other things when we think about it. All right, Abraham then would be 137 because he's 10 years older than his wife. Isaac then would be a grown man, 37 years old. So this is a, a quite a few years after that test God gave to Abraham. Now, again, in ancient times, women were married at a very early age. As soon as you completed puberty, you were of marriageable age. 
So when you think about that, it's very likely that they were married when Sarah was a teenager. So do you realize that they were probably married over 110 years? And some of your wives are saying, I wonder how she did that. <laughs> but think, the majority, the vast majority of your life, you've been married to this one man. And then this one man uh, loses you. And how is he going to feel uh, at that loss? You know, imagine what he was probably suffering. And losing a spouse, of course, is one of the most difficult trials of life. And he mourned over his wife, Sarah. She dies in Kiriath Arba, which is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and weep for her. These two words are often associated in the Bible with the loss of a loved one. And the verb to mourn is indicative of loud crying, even wailing. And that was the customary way that they lamented over someone who has died. And in the East, they still do that. We went to a, a funeral of a dear friend uh, in India a number of years ago. And uh, when the daughter came in, she just wailed out loud uh, uh, seeing her mother. So this is something that's even carried on today in some places. And so some years after Abraham's great test, he loses the closest person to him in this life. Now, it's important to note here also where she died. She dies in Hebron. And you remember that at this time, even though they're living in the land and that Hebron was a kind of a base of operations for a period of time, it's kind of central to the land, uh, her death poses a dilemma, not just the mourning and the feelings of sorrow, but there's no place for her to be buried. They own nothing in the land. And normally in that ancient culture, a person uh, who suffered this kind of loss would bury their spouse in the family burial plot of their ancestors. And for Abraham, this would have meant going back to Haran where his father died and where they probably had acquired a burial lot there to be with the family of this earth. So Sarah's death provides then an opportunity for Abraham to continue to claim with uh, what God had promised him. Will he go back to the old land? Will he go back to the former family? Or will he lay his claim in Canaan, the land of promise? Now, <clears throat> we learned that in this life, God's people will suffer great losses. But those losses provide for us opportunities to claim the promises of God. Now, not many of us have yet experienced the loss of a spouse like Abraham did, but someday, folks, that's going to happen. We're going to grieve. We're going to pass through an extremely difficult time of life. And uh, we experience that somewhat when we lose people that we know that we love. 
but if our spouse knew the Lord, even his or her death calls to mind the promise of God that life continues beyond the grave. It is not the end for the believer. And although, although that person that we love so much is no longer with us and we feel the pain of grief, they're in a far better place than this and one day we will join them. Death is the gateway to eternity with God. So we should not get angry with him. We should be thankful that we do not sorrow as those who have no hope, but we look forward to the day when we will be rejoined with our loved ones, but most importantly with the Lord Jesus Christ and the family of God for all of eternity. And this same truth holds true no matter what kind of loss we might face in this life. And there are some hard things we go through in this life, and they provide us an opportunity either to respond correctly or incorrectly to God's will and God's purposes. And we ought to be claiming the promise of God that he will help us through those difficulties. He will encourage us. He will be there. And we claim those promises related to these types of things in his word. Now, the main part of this story begins in verse 3. And we have here Abraham's negotiation for this burial place. And it is an affirmation of claiming God's promises. And in this section, we have three dialogues with the Hittite people, the sons of Heth, one being Ephron. And this is going to assure a burying place for Sarah in the land of promise. Now it's noteworthy that Abraham had to buy his first possession in that land, and it was for a cemetery. But it was a strong affirmation of his faith. All right, so let's go through the story, see what happens here. <clears throat> First of all, verses 3 through 6, Abraham humbly seeks a burial place for his beloved wife. And he approaches the sons of Heth, saying to them, I am a foreigner and a visitor among you. Now, that's kind of a humble way to introduce yourself. A foreigner, a stranger, a visitor. This means he was not native to that land. He was just a sojourner going from place to place. And his status meant that he owned no property in the land. His roots were not established. And usually that status was permanent for a foreigner. And usually such people were considered the lowest in the social scale. And as such, Abraham really is a type of all saints who live in a world that's not their true home. But he's, he's viewing himself as the lowest of the low and comes humbly before these people with his request. And he asks for a piece of property that will serve as a burial place for his dead wife. He says to the people, give me property for a burial place among you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. 
Now, when he uses that terminology, he's not really asking them to give him a portion of land. We're going to see that very clearly as the dialogue proceeds. But there's a different way to take this verb to give, and they're really kind of opposite meanings. And we need to understand that when Abraham says, give me a piece of property, he's speaking in the sense of ownership, not that they would give it as a gift. He's asking the Hittites to sell him a burial plot. And he says, uh, really, when he says, give it to me, he says, sell it to me. Now, the Hittites and Ephron, when they use that term, usually they're meaning, okay, we're going to grant it to you as a gift. And we see that in their response. Now, Abraham views himself as very low, but look at how they view him. And this is really a picture of the Christian, isn't it? We're supposed to be humble like the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we do that, other people are probably going to respect us if we have proper attitudes going through life. And this is what we see here. The sons of Hath answered Abraham, saying to him, Hear us, my Lord. Now, you don't call somebody who's inferior in your view a Lord, but that's what they do. They also say, You are a mighty prince among us. And that particular word prince really means prince of God. The name El is in the word. So they're recognizing Abraham as a mighty man in the land because he's a prince of God. So they're recognizing his status with God as one who's blessed by God and one who's protected by God. We've seen incidents of that in the life of Abraham. So what do they do as they esteem Abraham in their land? He, they say, bury your dead in the choicest of our burial places. None of us will withhold from you his burial place that you may bear your dead. So they're saying, because of our respect for you and your uh, greatness in our country, we are willing to give you the best burial place. You can select it from anyone or anywhere you want, and we will give it to you. But Abraham has something different in mind. He's got a specific place for which he will pay full price. Look at verse 7. As the negotiation moves forward, then Abraham stood up, and usually in these kind of councils, people will be sitting together, maybe like in a circle, and they're going back and forth. He stands up now and he bows himself to the people of the land, the sons of Heth. And this is the only time you see Abraham bowing to anyone. And he's doing it really out of respect uh, for this gracious offer of the people. And uh, it's, it's, it's part of a respectful negotiation of that time. They've expressed their desire for Abraham to bury his dead. They're willing to give him any a piece of property to do that. Uh, so he's thinking of someplace specific. And he says in verse 8, If it is your wish that I bury my dad out of my sight, hear me and meet with Ephron, the son of Zohar, for me. So he wants this 
council or group of people to be the intermediary and the witnesses for what he's proposing here because there's a piece of property, there's a cave that this person owns and he wants to buy that particular piece of property. Verse 9, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he has, which is at the end of his field, let him give it to me at the full price. So he's not using the term give as a gift, but sell it to me for the full price as property for a burial place among you. Okay, now uh, Abraham wants this particular cave. The meaning of that term means a split or double cave. It kind of indicates that there's like two mouths to the cave close together. And apparently it was situated in this field owned by Ephron, and he wants to buy that field. Now, folks, uh, according to the commentaries, the ancient people cherished their burial grounds. Burial in the ancestral grave indicated honor and continuity within the family. And that's important because you have to remember that Abraham's family, his father, and perhaps others who had passed away, weren't in Canaan. They were back in Haran. They were in the land of Aram. So he's got a choice to make. Normally, he would take Sarah back to that place and bury her there. And that's where he would be buried. But no, he's laying claim to God's promise that even though Sarah had passed away, he was going to bury her in the land God promised to him. And he's not looking to a connection to the past, but to the future. Because this is going to be a future burial place of God's people. All right. So he's asking for a permanent burial ground in Canaan. He's claiming God's promise to inherit the land, even though he doesn't even own one acre. And he's willing to die in the land with his wife, because that's where he's going to get buried as well. It's a a family plot. And the future progeny of faith will be buried there. Now, at this point, uh, it seems the movement goes to the city gate. We don't know if they were already in the city or they went to the city where Ephron was. But at any rate, Ephron is, is now going to respond uh, to him. Verse uh, 10, Ephron dwelt among the sons of Heth, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the presence of the sons of Heth, all who entered at the gate of his city. So now they're at the gate of the city where Ephron lived, and the city gate was the place where like uh, the town council meets. And they discuss business matters and settle uh, uh, legal issues. And if you want to go and, and buy a piece of property, these people will act as your witnesses. So this is something that is formal, and it's legal, and it's binding which is really better than taking a gift. And I think Abraham understands this. He realizes this. So before all of these witnesses at the gate of the city, Ephron makes another offer to Abraham that seems to be very generous, including the field. He says, no, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field and the cave that is in it. I give it to you in the presence of the sons of my people. I give it to you three times, he says that. Bury your dead. Now, it's difficult to perceive if Ephron 
was truly gracious and just wanted to give the field to Abraham or that he was just being polite in the negotiations and bargaining. And because later it comes to the point where a price is named, perhaps he was just being polite. Uh, But let's go on and see what happens here. Abraham responds to this. And again, note, these adamant not to take a gift, no matter what the attitude or, or thoughts of Ephron might be. Abraham bowed himself again before the people of the land, and he spoke to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, saying, If you will give it, please hear me, I will give you money for the field. Take it from me, and I will bury my dead there. So he's not going to take an, any offer of a gift. He's going to pay for the land. He's not going to accept this offer of a gift and uh, Abraham insists on paying the full price. Why would he do that if he had the opportunity to get it for nothing? I'm telling you right now, you farmers, if somebody offered to give you five acres for nothing, you would take it, wouldn't you? Uh, sure, why, why pay for it when you can get it for free? Well, Abraham was uh, probably thinking some things here. And he likely realized that a gift of land perhaps did not hold as much legal power as uh, paying for that land and having it deeded to you. Now, a gift may be rescinded in the future generations, or the person offering the gift, as was common back in that day, may be thinking that he will require something in return of equal value. So you're really paying for it in the end anyways. And also, uh, Abraham, again, was not willing to receive freely from Canaanites what God has already promised him is his. So he's willing to pay a price to demonstrate his faith in God's word and claim that promise. And many centuries later, interestingly, King David is going to do the same thing when Ornan, the Jebusite, offers to give the threshing floor to David, which will be the future site of the temple. And David says, no, uh, I'm not going to offer to God that which costs me nothing. And he gave him the full price. So it's the same concept, same idea. And such acts are demonstrations of faith, claiming the promises of God, even when you may not be around to see the final fulfillment. Abraham also would die. And uh, uh, Isaac would die, and Jacob would die. It'd be hundreds of years before the promise was really fulfilled. And the next few verses, the, the, the transaction is finally completed. Okay, so Abraham's determined to pay a price, and whatever was in the mind of Ephron, he's now going to give a price. Verse 14, he answered Abraham, saying to him, My Lord, listen to me. The land is worth 400 shekels of silver, What is that between you and me? So bury your dead. So now he names a price. And uh, it's hard to determine what that price really was in ancient times because they didn't have coinage. They just had weights of silver. And we don't have any idea of knowing whether or not this was truly a fair price or not. Some say it wasn't. Some say it was. Some say it was exorbitant. Some say it was a going rate. But Abraham is not going to haggle He's like, okay, how about, how about 300? 
And they settle on three fifths. No, he's going to pay the full price because the full price means that uh, what he has done is above board, it's legal, it's proper, it can never be disputed in the future, and he's going to pay whatever price is named in order to secure that for his progeny. So he weighs out the silver according to the weight currency of the day, and this burial plot then becomes his permanent property in the land. And included in it is all the borders, the natural resources, and, and it's witnessed to by all of these people. It's undeniable, and there will be no future claims or disputes about that piece of property. So Abraham has now secured the first piece of real estate in the promised land where he's been for the past uh, 62 years as a burial place for his wife. And now his descendants one day will be given that whole tract of land which was the promised land. So in verses 19 and 20, Abraham lays to rest his dear wife, Sarah. Verse 19, after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, before Mamre, which is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave that is in it were deeded to Abraham by the sons of Heth as property for a burial place. So he secured this first piece of real estate in the promised land, He's laid claim to God's promise that his descendants would one day situate in that land. It's interesting that later, time passes by, Abraham will pass, he will be buried there. Isaac and Rebekah will be buried there. Uh, uh, Jacob and Leah will be buried there. And if you went to the Holy Land today, you could go and visit that site. Thousands of years later, it still remains as a testimony to the faith of Abraham claiming the promises of God. Well, how do we apply this to our lives today? Well, let's think about a few things. First of all, death and burial the reminders of our ultimate fate, the reminders of the result of sin. We're made of flesh. We're going to die physically. But Abraham buried his wife in the hope of God's forever promise. God says, I give you this land forever. It's an eternal promise of an eternal resting place. And that hope extends beyond this short life. It goes beyond the grave to all of eternity. We've mentioned the truth that in this life we will suffer great losses, none greater than our own family members. In this past year, my wife and I have lost three, three relatives, including her mother and my dad. We've lost three other sisters in Christ. And although we sorrow through those times, we don't sorrow like those who have no hope. We have hope beyond the grave. And we're reminded On these occasions, even though they are sorrowful, that there's an eternal resting place where all of us will gather who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, will be reunited with all of our loved ones, and will experience the promise 
all the promises pertaining to eternal life, of being with Christ, living in the eternal city of God, uh, to which Abraham and Sarah were looking even back then. And that is a comfort to us today. Those are promises we lay claim to, even in times of sorrow. We're also reminded here of our connection to Abraham as foreign to this world. We are strangers here. We're sojourners. And as Hebrews 11 says, by faith, he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. So that's why we do not love the world or the things of the world. That's why we set our affection on things above, not on things of the earth. And we also see here the testimony of Abraham's faith, despite Sarah's passing. He still believed the promise. He owned nothing but the well at Beersheba, which he had dug himself. And he'd not seen God's promise of the land come to fruition. It wasn't given to him. He actually had to buy a piece of it. But his action of buying that burial place uh, for future generations showed that he believed that was God's will. He's fulfilling his word. And this is the first piece of real estate that assures us the promise will be fulfilled. And it would be a reminder to future generations of that same promise. His son Isaac, his grandson Jacob, the 12 uh, uh, sons of Jacob, and on down. So we too must lay hold of what God says in his word about everything. Because it all relates to our salvation, our sanctification, uh, uh, sanctification, and our future glorification. So we must claim the promises of God through all circumstances in life until Christ comes or until he takes us home to glory. Do you claim the promises of God? Heavenly Father, we're thankful for your word today. We're thankful for the truth it teaches us. We're thankful, Lord, for the faith of Abraham, that although he floundered at times, he became one of the greatest men of faith in the word of God. He laid claim to your promises, Lord, uh, even though he didn't perfectly do that. In the end, we find that he did. And we pray, Lord, you help us to emulate that same faith when we face the hardships and the difficulties of life, that we might go to the word of God, that we might search out the promises that will help us through those dark times. Help us, Lord, uh, to have the faith of Abraham, we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.